Welcome back to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. This is episode 207, part 2, Hannibal, Carthage, Rome, Second Punic Wars. Hope you enjoy. Everything you hear in this episode is non-commercial, fair use, creative commons license. The show you're about to hear is part two of a three-part episode. If you haven't heard part one, you might want to download that and listen to it first. Punic Nightmares, part two. It's hardcore history. Late in the year 218 BC, the great Carthaginian general Hannibal Barca had accomplished, well, what was thought to be the impossible. He had taken a civilized army across the greatest natural mountain barrier in Europe, the Alps, and arrived on the Italian side, ready to strike at the heart of his Roman enemy. It's one of those times when I try to put myself, you know, in their place and try to get a sense of what they must have been feeling the day after the army emerges from the Alpine passes and is sitting there on the other side and just sort of has a minute to contemplate what they've accomplished. I get a sense of all kinds of possible emotions. You know, as a fan of history, I try to imagine the one I like the most, which I imagine Hannibal was having a touchdown catch in the Super Bowl kind of moment, as a friend of mine once called it. If you're lucky, you know, in your life you have one or more moments where you get a chance to accomplish some long sought after goal, something you work hard towards, you know, and the outcome of which is not assured. You're not sure all this work's going to pay off, and then it does pay off. It's like catching a touchdown pass in the Super Bowl, sort of. Hannibal, in my fan-oriented mind, is having one of those moments the day after he arrives on the other side of the Alps. There's all kinds of things he must have been feeling. I mean, part of me thinks there must have been some sentimentality involved. Because, you know, his dad was the real person who hated the Romans more than anyone, Hamilcar. And his dad wasn't here to see his son achieve this great accomplishment. You know, stage one of the great plan to get back at the Romans. His dad may have even conceived of the whole idea of crossing the Alps as a way to get to the Romans. So I imagine Hannibal had a little bit of misty sentimentality going on. Just my own view, you know. At the same time, you get the feeling that he must have been appalled and anxious too. Because he had to look around and see he only had about 26,000 guys out of probably 50 that started on the other side of the Alps a mere two weeks to 17 days before. And the reason we have this 26,000 number, by the way, is the uh, main source of this period, a guy named Polybius, as we said, says that he actually trekked up to the mountains and saw a metallic plaque that Hannibal erected as he was coming down the Alps saying, I was here and here's how many people I had with me and that sort of thing. So that's where that number comes from. And you imagine Hannibal probably was looking around thinking, where's my army? Maybe he had not planned to lose this many troops. Most Carthaginian generals didn't like facing the Romans that much under the best of circumstances and with quite a few more men than Hannibal had here. And here he was with about 26,000 guys going, well, I need a couple of things. Thing number one, I need some food and supplies. Thing number two, I need reinforcements. And he must have been wondering where the reinforcements were, because remember, the plan involved Hannibal coming over to Italy and having all these other Italian peoples that didn't like the Romans and were under the Roman thumb flock to his banner. This was going to provide, you know, the manpower. 
And the Celtic people, especially whose country he was now in, were not where they were supposed to be. So a couple days after arriving on the other side of the Alps, Hannibal takes his wearied men and goes after a local Gallic hill town, besieges it for a couple of days, storms the place, cuts the throat of everyone in it as a way to say, we know you're afraid of the Romans, but you need to be afraid of us too. And that's probably what it was. The Celts probably looked at this you know, ragtag, small group of Africans that arrived on the other side of the Alps and thought, we're not throwing our lot in with you quite yet. We don't want to have the Romans take out their anger on us after they beat the heck out of you. They were sort of hedging their bets. But the storming of this Gallic hill town provided his troops, Hannibal's troops, with supplies and food enough to start rebuilding their health and morale. And they needed to because the Romans were already on the way. To be sure, the Romans were caught by surprise by Hannibal's crossing the Alps. And even when they probably found out he was doing it, I'm sure they thought he was going to fail. The crossing of the Alps had the intended effect, though, because it totally discombobulated all of Rome's plans for the Second Punic War. When the conflict with Hannibal and the Carthaginians had broken out, Rome had quickly assembled a couple of armies and in typical aggressive, determined, you know, no fooling around Roman fashion, they were going to send one of the armies over to Africa, figuring if you're going to fight a war with Carthage, why not fight it outside the walls of Carthage? So they sent this army to Sicily and it was prepping and training and doing some stuff, getting ready to go to Africa. The Romans outfitted another army and sent and sent it on its way to Spain, which was the Carthaginian sort of you know, European capital. It was their main European base. So Rome was basically saying, if we're going to fight a war with Carthage, we'll send one army to Africa and deal with that center of power. We'll send the other army to Spain, deal with that center of power. Carthaginian problem solved. Hannibal's crossing of the Alps screwed those plans up entirely because the Romans instantly started recalling armies. Told that commander in Sicily, forget about going to Africa, we need you back up here. The army that was on its way to Spain had actually encountered Hannibal's force in what's now modern-day southern France while Hannibal's force was marching toward the Alps. There had been a little teeny cavalry encounter between the Roman army there and the Carthaginians, and the Romans had kind of gotten the better of it. But the Romans were intending to intercept Hannibal, and Hannibal gave them the slip and managed to get around and left before they got to a certain river valley, that kind of thing. Now, here's the interesting part. The commander of that army that Hannibal ran into in southern France on his way to the Alps was a guy named Scipio. Now, this is important, and it's part of what I think makes the Punic War so confusing, is the names. The Scipio name is important, but there's a problem. He'll have a very important son in this story, also named Scipio. He'll have a very important grandson in this story, also named Scipio. One of the top reasons the Punic Wars are hard for people to understand is that both the Carthaginians and the Romans have name systems that just drive you crazy. The Carthaginians seem to have only five or six or seven names in their whole naming lexicon. Everybody is a Hamilcar or a Hasdrubal or a Mago. Try keeping them straight. The Romans have a triple naming system, which reminds you of our own first name, middle name, last name thing. But they included their family name, their clan name, and they seem to have like 20, you know, proper first names too. So everybody just sounds like the same guy. This Scipio, though, we'll call Scipio the Elder. And by the way, whether you pronounce that Scipio or Scipio is sort of a matter of taste. The hard C, soft C sound question for Latin and Roman words is a long-running one. 
I tend to err on the side of what it would have sounded like if the Romans actually pronounced it, and they would have used a hard sound like Scipio, so that's where I go. But Scipio is also correct and widely used, just like Macedonia versus Macedonia or Scythian versus Scythian. It's the same controversy. In any case, the Scipios are an important family in Rome. They are, to the Roman side of this Punic War story, what the Barca family is to the Carthaginian side, in the same way that it's Hamilcar and his lion's brood of kids, you know, Hannibal, Hasdrubal, Mago, who are all fighting the Romans. The Romans have Scipio, and then his son, who will become Scipio Africanus, and then his grandson, who will be the guy who destroys Carthage. Imagine if, in the First World War, the Second World War, and the Cold War, one family on each side had been providing all the political or military leadership. You know, Adolf Hitler's grandfather running the you know, running the Kaiser's World War I army, and then Adolf Hitler running the World War II army, and then Adolf Hitler's son running the Cold War army. I mean, it's hard to imagine such a almost nepotism in political and military leadership. And the Romans placed a lot of stock, by the way, in your family, not just because the great families had money, but because the Romans had an attitude that we would describe today in the United States as a belief in the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree. Maybe we would say in modern terms that the Romans believed in genetics, determining how great of a leader you would be. And certain families were believed by the Romans to produce great leaders. And if you had great leaders, that's one of the things you advertised in Roman society as a way of you know, making your family even more powerful. For example, one of the things the Romans often did at funerals of great people was they would have actors who would be hired who would wear costumes and masks representing the dead person's ancestors, and they would recreate the great events of this family's background and ancestry for the audience to keep everybody, you know, remembering how great this family was. And so it was these great families that often pushed Roman policy, although they also had something they referred to as a new man. A new man was someone who came from a regular old family and who would sometimes become the leader of a brand new family. You know, they, you could work your way up, I guess, into the Roman great family chain. But the Scipios are one of those great families. And in 218 BC, this Scipio, the elder, is one of the two Roman consuls. Remember, the Romans were paranoid about power being in one person's hand, so they elected two people to the top job. And those people got to command the main Roman armies. Another one of those fascinating things about Republican Rome is their politicians were their generals. This created all sorts of real-world issues. Real-world issue number one, the decision on where, when, and how to fight often had political considerations. In a ton of these stories, you're going to see tactical and strategic decisions made for popularity and political reasons. Now, Hannibal brushes up against this Scipio, as we said, on his way to the Alps, gets to the other side of the Alps, deals with this Gallic issue, and then starts to move south towards what he knows is a Roman army moving north towards him. Turns out he finds out at some point that the Roman army is commanded by Scipio, the same guy he just left behind on the other side of the Alps. Historian Adrian Goldsworthy says that Hannibal must have assumed that the whole army he just saw on the other side of the Alps had been transported, when in reality, Scipio had left that army in southern France on its way to Spain and instead put himself at the head of a brand new army. 
bunch of raw recruits and people who had recently lost to the Celts and started moving north to face Hannibal. In addition, that army that had been recalled from Sicily was starting up Italy too to provide a, you know, added boost. Now, as Hannibal moves toward the Roman armies coming up to meet him and they become aware of each other's presence and they lay out camps and they get ready to face each other, both sides are feeling tense and nervous. This is a key first encounter between the Romans and the Carthaginians. The first time any of these troops have fought the other side. Remember, the First Punic War is a generation ago. There had to be tons of tension. On the Carthaginian side, my goodness, people hadn't even had time to get their strength back, and here they were facing the vaunted legions with a commander who'd never faced legionaries before. On the Roman side, you had a brand new commander, Scipio, taking over an army that had been recently beaten by the Gauls and brought back up to strength by a bunch of green, raw recruits. Not a lot of time to train. Yet both armies were confident and ready to face the enemy. Anxious but confident. And both commanders are said to have employed methods for getting their troops up for the battle. In the case of Scipio, he's supposed to have given some, you know, rousing speech to this army who didn't even know him well because he just took over. Livy, hundreds of years afterwards, writes um, a speech and puts it into his mouth. It's probably not what he actually said, of course, but gives sort of a feeling of the mood. Here's what Livy has Scipio saying before the first encounter with Hannibal's Carthaginians. My men, let me tell you what sort of warfare you must expect. It will be against an enemy you defeated in the last war, both on land and at sea. An enemy from whom you have exacted tribute for 20 years. An enemy from whom you took Sicily and Sardinia as prizes of war. You, therefore, will enter upon it with the high hearts of victors, they in the despondency of beaten men. Nay more, their readiness to fight at all is due not to courage, but necessity unless you imagine that an enemy who declined combat when his army was intact has better hopes of success now that he's lost two-thirds of his troops during the passages of the Alps. Perhaps you will answer that though they are few, they are nevertheless brave and strong, that they are irresistible fighters. Nonsense. They are ghosts and shadows of men, already half-dead, with hunger, cold, dirt, and neglect. All their strength has been crushed and beaten out of them by the Alpine crags. Cold has dried them up. Snowstorms have frozen their sinews stiff. Their hands and feet are frostbitten, their horses lame and enfeebled, and they've not a weapon amongst them which is not damaged or broken. What an army! Why, you'll not be facing an enemy at all, but only the dregs of what once were men. My chief fear is that we shall have to admit that it was the Alps, not you, who conquered Hannibal. Ah, well, perhaps it was right that the gods, without human aid, should have fought the first stages of a war with treaty breakers like these. We, who after heaven have suffered from their treachery, have the duty only of bringing that war to its conclusion. So that's the kind of speech, maybe the feel of the speech, Scipio is supposed to have given to his men. Hannibal had a different idea. He was going to give an object lesson. He had some Celtic peoples that he had captured in that raid on the hill fort, and he offered these Celts a choice. He said, who amongst you will take your chances against one of your countrymen in a one-on-one -on -one battle. He offered these Celts weapons and a chance to fight another Celt, and whoever would win the you know, gladiatorial combat in front of the rest of the Carthaginian army would be given a horse and weapons and be allowed to ride off, and of course the other guy would be dead. 
And lots of Celts wanted to do this. And the ones who didn't get the chance to, the story says, felt bad about it. And of course, in front of the Carthaginian army, these Celts fight it out until one of them dies and the other gets to ride away. Hannibal probably had two reasons for this. One, the Celt that rides away is going to ride back to his tribe and say, hey, at least this Hannibal guy was fair. That's the kind of standard a Celt would have appreciated, that the stronger guy gets to go home and have his weapons and everything. In addition, though, Hannibal told his army, this is the position you yourselves are in. The conquer or die gladiatorial combat you just saw is exactly what you're facing. You have the Alps behind you. There is no retreat. You either beat this Roman army coming up here or you're dead. You have a conquer or die situation. And then he went on to tell them that if you conquer, you don't just get to live. You're going to get a chance to get the riches of this Italian peninsula and this great city of Rome. This is the beginning of a great future for you, but you have to win, victory or death. Now, here's how we're told the first conflict shapes up. Both sides send out scouting parties of cavalry. And in one of these days, the scouting party on the Carthaginian side includes Hannibal himself. And on the other side, on the Roman side, the scouting party of cavalry, including some light infantry javelin men running with them or riding on the backs of the horses, that includes Scipio with them looking around the battlefield or the potential battlefield. And both these scouting parties run into each other and a sharp battle happens. Eventually, the Roman cavalry is outnumbered and surrounded and starts routing and running away. And Scipio himself is badly wounded. Some of the Roman writers uh, say that his life was only saved by the intervention of his 18-year-old son, who was with sort of the guard in the far distance, and the guard was afraid to run and help, you know, the defeated Roman cavalry trying to get away from the pursuing Carthaginians. But Scipio by himself rides out, the younger Scipio, the eventual Africanus was his name, Scipio Africanus. He rides out and shames the rest of his bodyguard into riding with him so he can save his father and get him out of the fight and take him back to the Roman camp badly wounded. This battle turns out to be critical for a lot of reasons. It was small, didn't mean anything in terms of numbers and casualties, not a big deal at all. But to the morale of both sides, this was huge. All of a sudden, the Romans now had doubts. This aggressive, straightforward, dominant group of people, although Scipio's army, remember, was full of a bunch of people who had already been beaten by the Gauls and new guys. The Carthaginians had their spirits sore. They now knew they could at least contend to some degree with the Romans. They hadn't faced the legionary infantry yet, but they beat the cavalry pretty good. What's more, the effect on the Celtic peoples was huge. All of a sudden, all these Celtic tribes that were so important to Hannibal's plan of eventually defeating the Romans saw that this small group of Africans could hold their own. And Hannibal got his first influx of Celtic troops. Not a ton, but enough so that the battle that was shaping up to happen next, he wouldn't have to fight with just the men who crossed the Alps. This early victory of Hannibal even affected the Celts who were the allies of the Romans. Some of the tribes were allied with the Romans. And Polybius talks about more than 2,000 Celts who were in a camp with the Romans who decided after Hannibal's first victory that they wanted to defect to the other side. So they simply killed all the Romans in the camp with them, cut their heads off, went over to Hannibal's camp and presented the Roman soldiers' heads as a token of their sincerity. Hannibal, of course, sent them back to their own people and said, go tell them what I'm doing, tell them to bring more people, you know, trying to 
portray himself as the liberator of all these other Italian people who were, you know, victims of Roman aggression over the last century or two. Now, as Scipio nursed his wounds and stayed in his camp, the other consul, bringing the other army up from Sicily that was supposed to invade Africa, shows up. His name, by the way, is uh, Longus, Sempronius Longus. And Longus gets there, and now you have another one of those interesting elements to the whole politician commanding the Roman army thing, is what do you do when you have both consuls there and both their armies there? A double consular army, it was called. Who commands when you have two presidents at the same battle? Well, the Roman system was one commander commands one day, the next day the other guy commands. You can see the possible problems inherent in that. What's more, the consuls always seemed to be worried. They had a one-year term of office. They always seemed to be worried that their term of office was going to expire before they had a chance to have the glory of the military victory that they spent the rest of the year setting up. In this case, Sempronius Longus was worried that his term of office was going to run out before he got to beat Hannibal and the Carthaginians. As a matter of fact, the elections for the next year's consul were not that far off. So understandably, Longus wanted to fight now. What's more, he hoped to fight on his day of command. Scipio was so badly wounded, he might not get his day of command, and he was telling Longus, look, we're not ready to fight. Now, by the way, take this with a grain of salt, because the historian we have for this period is the guy we mentioned before, Polybius. And Polybius was very closely associated with the Scipio family knew the grandson of the man we're talking about here personally, and may not have been exactly unbiased when he wrote about things, but he makes this Scipio, the elder, out to be very cautious and warning and saying, I'm predicting bad things. Don't fight. The longer we wait, the better it is for us. You know, we'll just wait the winter out. We'll train our young raw troops. Every day we'll be getting stronger. Every day they'll be getting weaker. Eventually their Gallic allies will become bored with the whole thing and go home, which they had a tendency to do anyway. That's supposedly the advice Scipio was giving. Besides, he had just faced the Carthaginians, and he saw that they were highly superior in the numbers of cavalry they had, and he told Longus, don't do anything. Longus was supposed to be worried about his political position, and Livy, the ancient historian, has him arguing all the time in sort of a, you know, nice fashion, but debates and arguments with the rest of the leaders of the Roman army about do we attack and take on the Carthaginians or do we wait here? So there was a, an ongoing debate. I always chuckle a bit when I try to imagine our politicians in our modern republic being the commanders of our armies. And I don't know how it would work. Would you have to have, say, the president of the United States commanding one of our armies? So George Bush is commanding one of our armies in the field. And I guess the head of the legislature, Nancy Pelosi, commanding the other army in the field. That just kind of makes me laugh a little bit to think about it. Of course, the Roman commanders, even though they were politicians, were not neophytes. You could not run for public office in Rome unless you had 10 years of military experience. So at least these people had actually served in combat before, or, well, at least served. Hannibal apparently has some sort of intelligence telling him about the character of this longest guy, that he's aggressive and hot-headed and ready for all this fighting, which, by the way, describes the vast majority of Roman commanders anyway always aggressive, always ready to get into it. And Hannibal sets up a battle. There's an obvious area between the two camps that's a likely battlefield, and Hannibal is said to go out with his sub scouting it. A lot like Napoleon used to do, 
and he finds some places where he can hide troops, ambush spots. And he has his brother Mago, one of his most loyal, competent sub-commanders, says to Mago, he says, I want you to pick 100 infantrymen and 100 cavalrymen, your best choices, and then I want you to tell each one of those guys to pick his 10 best choices, and I want you to bring them here. That's done. Hannibal and Mago take them to a sort of a ravine river spot, it's thought to be, which is likely to be behind the lines of the battlefield if the battle shapes up the way Hannibal is planning. And he conceals those troops overnight. The next morning, he has his soldiers prepare for battle. They eat a hot meal, dress in front of big bonfires, Livy says, coat their bodies with grease and oil to protect themselves from the cold because it is freezing. There are intermittent sleet episodes, and it's, you know, late December at the foot of the Alps. It's cold. In the very, very early morning before the sun is up, Hannibal sends his Numidian African cavalry across the river Trebia to throw javelins and irritate the people in the watchtowers of the Roman camp. Hannibal tells them to provoke the hot-headed Roman commander into attacking them. The Roman commander sends out cavalry after the Numidians who can't catch them. Then he sends out light infantry after the Numidians. Then he eventually, thinking that this is looking like a good opportunity, sends out the whole darn army out of the camp. An army that was unready for battle that day, that had not prepped, that had not eaten breakfast, that was not prepared for the cold. All of these things were emphasized by the ancient historians. The army keeps heading toward this African cavalry that keeps retreating in front of them slowly. Eventually, they retreat across the River Trevia, and this large Roman army follows them across. By the way, according to Adrian Goldsworthy, by this time, you must imagine the Roman army is being in three long columns, each column two and a half miles long or longer. So there's your visual. The Romans cross the River Trevia by walking through it. The river is swollen by recent rains. It is absolutely frigid, and it comes up to sometimes the neck of the Roman infantry. The Roman infantry then crosses the river, begins to deploy their army in battle formation after the, on the far side of the river. It takes hours to do this, by the way. Deploying an ancient army involved officers making sure troops were placed in very specific spots. Imagine trying to take a long line of people, many thousands strong, and put them in some sort of order on a large field. As a matter of fact, when the Roman army was finally deployed, it was about two miles long in length and many, many men deep. Now, here's the thing. It is the early afternoon, at least by the time the Romans are done with this, an afternoon where the sleet is coming down from the sky, where it is freezing, where the Romans have not had breakfast, where they're not prepared to fight this day, where they have stood in the same spot, dripping wet from crossing the River Trebia, they have a lot of things working against them all of a sudden. This is one of the great genius elements of Hannibal as a general. He would take every little advantage he could get, no matter how small, and work it. And all these little teeny advantages would add up to one big advantage in the end. Getting the Romans out of the camp before they'd had breakfast. Getting them so they had to actually cross the river. And, remember, his brother Mago was now behind the Roman lines as the battle is about to break out. The Romans had actually crossed Mago's position while they were 
setting up and getting to the battle spot. They passed the ambush spot, another one of those little advantages Hannibal always seemed to contrive that we were talking about earlier. Now, once the Romans are across the river and committed, Hannibal brings out his army. Well-fed, sitting by fires until the last minute, ready for battle, knowing it was coming. The field already scouted in advance by Hannibal. He lines up his army, had about 20,000 infantry. It was also six to 10,000 cavalry and several thousand light troops. Adrian Goldsworthy um, thinks there were about 8,000 Celts and that he thinks they were placed in the center, maybe with the Spanish and the African infantry on the wings and the cavalry beyond them. And now there were elephants at this battle, somewhere around 30, depending on who you believe. The historians, uh, modern day historians have different numbers. And they were placed sort of near the African infantries on the wings. The Roman army was deployed in several lines. A front line of skirmisher infantry, who would have probably been unarmored with javelins. Behind them, the young men of the Roman army, hastati, they were called. A little bit of armor, usually. The famous Roman weapon, the pilum. A sort of a long, heavy javelin with a long point. A point that was so long, supposedly, it could pierce the shield of an enemy and keep going and actually pierce the body of the person holding the shield as well. One of the Roman writers from antiquity said that the Pilum conquered the world. No one knows where they got this weapon. Some ancient writers said that the Italian people, the Samnites, had developed it first. Others say that the Spanish tribesmen which had a weapon similar to this, had developed at first. The Romans were great adopters of other people's good ideas. The sword that they probably really conquered the world with, that little short sword that's the Roman trademark, that was adopted from the Spanish tribes for sure. Individual Roman fighters, after they threw their pilum, were basically swordsmen. And they fought differently, much differently, than the Greeks who fought in phalanxes. The Roman was an individual fighter, that made up a cohesive part of the whole. The ultimate combination between an organized army working cohesively and individuals acting within that framework. Now, behind them, a distance behind them, were the next level of Roman troops. These were guys in the prime of life, as the Romans called it. You know, around 28, 30 years old, in heavier armor, armed just like the guys in front of them. And behind them were the last reserve, the triarii. These were the veterans, you know, guys in their 40s probably, late 30s, armed with a long spear instead and a shield and lots of armor. And they were supposed to be the last reserve. If all heck broke loose, the army could sort of take refuge behind the spearmen who would lock their spears and shields together and act like a hedgehog and prevent anyone from molesting the defeated elements of the army. Or that's the theory anyway. The actual Roman infantry usually formed the center of the army. The Roman allies would form the wings on either side of the Roman legions. And then the Roman and allied cavalry would be on the very far edges. Now, here's the problem before this battle that was about to break out. The Carthaginians had about 10,000 cavalry. The Romans about 4,000. This would be crucial. As a general rule of thumb, if Hannibal had more cavalry on the battlefield than his Roman opponents, he beat his Roman opponents. In the Battle of the Trebia, the first thing that seems to have happened is Hannibal's 
cavalry on both of his wings, charged their opposite numbers, the Roman cavalry, directly in front of them on the Roman wings, and blew them off the battlefield. Remember, in their defense, they were outnumbered, the Roman cavalry, and also they had been the first ones out before dawn in the morning to try to chase that Numidian cavalry away from their camp. They'd been chasing this skirmishing cavalry all day, hadn't had breakfast, the sleet is coming down, it's freezing, it's been raining, you cross the river, you're tired, and now twice your number in cavalry is charging you. What's more, the exoticness of Hannibal's army is emphasized by the sources. First of all, the Romans thought the Celts were exotic. They used to talk about the, you know, the nudity that the Celts would often show, or even just not wearing a shirt, the different looks of them, the carrying of heads sometimes. I mean, the Celts freaked out the Romans, but the Africans were a totally different animal. They were even more exotic to most of the Romans. And how many people in the Roman army, I mean, you figure it's got to be less than a handful, had ever seen an elephant before? And yet, there were about 30 of them at the Trebia. Well, Hannibal's cavalry drives off the Roman cavalry, which leaves the Roman infantry without any sort of flank or rear protection at all. That cavalry then turns on the Roman flanks. We're also told Hannibal gets all his light troops and they turn on the Roman flanks. And so now the Romans are facing Hannibal's 20,000, you know, mercenary veterans in front and these elephants that they've never faced before. Their flanks are under attack from the cavalry and the light infantry. But remember, this is a long line of men, maybe two miles long and several men deep, probably... 20 or 30 when you add up all the various different ranks. This was a large block of people. And they were doing themselves proud holding their own. This was not a great Roman army. People that were already recently defeated by a Celtic force. A lot of green troops recently added to it. One of their commanders was new. And yet they were holding their own against all this trouble. And then we're told at the height of the drama... At the height of the important moment, Mago and his 2,000 veterans emerge from behind the Roman rear and charge from their concealed position, springing, you know, the ultimate exclamation point of Hannibal's trap. Livy says that that move shattered the Romans, and most of the Roman army turns around and runs toward the river Trebia, it seems like. But 10,000 Romans kind of lock shields and stay in formation and march off in good order and are unmolested to a nearby town and escape. The Carthaginians capture or kill all these fleeing Romans. And this is a good time, by the way, to take a look at what it was that was going on in terms of human experiences when one of these ancient battles happened. What did those people just go through and what was involved? I'm fascinated by extremes. And what goes on in an ancient battle involves so many different extremes that I can't help but be drawn to it. Battle, by its very nature, is extreme, right? But pre-gunpowder battle takes all of those things that scare us and rivet us about, you know, this human thing called combat and amplifies it. You don't get to shoot somebody from... 30 yards away, you have to kill them by hand up close or be killed and then move on to the next one. What goes on in ancient battle is this human experience in its rawest form. And it fascinates me. 
And it's hard to imagine that the people that take part in this stuff are even the same breed of animal as we are. And people were literally scared to incontinence on the ancient battlefield. One of the things that the ancient playwrights and stuff will talk about is how people would lose control of their bowels or, um, or bladders while waiting for the combat to start. You know, you're just standing there in the ranks and the fear is palpable. You can hear the teeth chattering some of the ancient playwrights talk about. People go ashen white. One of the Roman commanders who, um, who fought the Macedonian uh, phalanx a little bit later on after this period talks about his absolute knee-shaking fright the first time he sees this hedgehog formation of spears approaching. And when you think of the terror that must have been involved compared to modern battle, see, in modern battle, troops are sort of endangered at a low level all the time. If you're running around the trenches in Europe in the First World War, a shell could land on you at any moment, sort of like lightning striking, but, you know, obviously there was a lot of lightning around. But at any given moment, you're not, you know, in terrible danger, but you could die at any time. In pre-gunpowder times, it was more of an opposite sort of effect. 99.9% .9 of the time, you were in no danger at all, just walking around, marching, eating, whatever it was. But on the day of the battle, you were in maximum danger. And standing there in the ranks with, you know, watching your army line up and the enemy army across the plane line up, you had a lot of time to think about what might be happening to you by the end of the day. And the terrible things you might have to go through. And the ancient people were probably worried about being killed or injured, obviously, as any of us would be. But as a modern person, I look at what they're expected to do that day, and that freaks me out just as much. They were expected to be serial killers, mass murderers that day. I mean, the worst thing that could happen is that you could be horribly mutilated and killed. The best thing that could happen, I guess, is that you kill and horribly mutilate someone else. The psychological stress must have been intense. You think about post-traumatic stress disorder and shell shock that troops get in modern combat. What must the, you know, lifetime-long nightmares have been like for the veterans of battles, well, from this period of time? And you think of the kinds of things you were expected to do when the two sides came into contact with each other. The actual, you know, fighting is Mansonistic. I don't want to overuse that term, but you just think of the blood flying everywhere. And the part that would really freak me out about this, too, is that in tribal societies, families would often fight with each other. And even in the so-called civilized societies like Greece and Rome, you often hear accounts of siblings or fathers and sons fighting right with each other in the battle line. Imagine you're in a hand-to-hand -hand situation where you're trying to murder one guy and he's trying to murder you and you look over and there's your son, you know, losing that same sort of struggle right near you. The emotions must have been incredible. I mean, forget about you actually killing or being killed. Imagine looking over to the guy next to you and you witness something like, well, one of the many descriptions out of the Iliad by Homer. Here's one. The son of Telamon, sweeping through the mass of the fighters, struck him at close quarters through the brazen cheeks of his helmet, and the helm crested with horsehair was riven around the spearhead. To the impact of the huge spear and the weight of the hand behind it, and the brain ran from the wound along the spear by the eye hole. That's serial killer stuff. If you looked over and you saw that, well, wouldn't you just run? Would you just turn around in fright and just take off? Well, 
this was what everyone on that battlefield was you know, holding it together, trying not to do. Because if a couple guys ran, there was a danger that the fear would spread like a contagion and everybody would run. The Greeks said that Phobos ruled the battlefield. Phobos is, uh, you know, where we get our root for the word phobia. And everybody, teeth chattering, was just trying not to run. And the first side that could intimidate or scare the other side into running was going to win the whole thing. There were not a lot of casualties, a surprisingly few amount of casualties inflicted in the actual battle line, one side going at the other. It's when one side decided that, hey, things are done and it's every man for himself, when the collapse came, that the real casualties and people started dying. Another thing that intrigues me about pre-gunpowder warfare is how a person's status in society did not protect them from their responsibility in war, but usually meant that they had to have a bigger role than poorer, less powerful people. Sort of the reverse of what we have today, where so many of the lower classes in society bear the burden of you know, modern warfare and fighting. Whereas in the ancient world, it would be an embarrassment for some of the richer and more powerful people in those societies to not play a major role in the battle. A bunch of Roman consuls lost their lives in the Punic Wars. A ton of Roman senators lost their lives. Can you imagine any of our modern politicians losing their life you know, on the battlefield? Can't even imagine them being on the battlefield. The fact that the rich and powerful were right there in the center of things and expected to do the most and bear the responsibility for this fighting is one of the things that makes the ancient period so interesting to me. So while that was the experience of individuals at these horrifying encounters that were pre-gunpowder battles. The collective experience was also horrifying. In the case of the Battle of the Trebia, 20,000, an estimated 20,000 dead Romans was what you had. Hannibal himself had not suffered badly at all in the fighting, but he did suffer in the terrible weather afterwards. We told you it was cold at the foot of the Alps in December. It was sleeting at the Battle of the Trebia, and it was snowing and freezing afterwards. We're told Hannibal lost a lot of troops, including almost all his elephants. Once again, Hannibal's suffering more from the elements, you know, the Alps taking half his army, the uh, weather after the Trebia taking all his elephants, suffered worse from the elements than from the Romans he faced. Now, the architect of that disaster, Sempronius Longus, returns to Rome as fast as he can, trying to beat the news— you know, being a politician, as well as a general, he was concerned about the way this might be portrayed. Uh, Polybius says he ran back there and tried to put his own spin on it. He told the Roman Senate and people that he'd basically beaten Hannibal, but that his total victory had been marred by the bad weather. Eventually, the Romans figured out that, you know, Hannibal was in possession of the field. He had all the captives, etc., etc. So they figured it out. Longus was lucky to not have paid with his life for, well, both the conduct of the battle and... Um, his portrayal of it afterwards. Now, 20,000 dead troops after a battle would be enough to have your average ancient state capitulate. It was enough to make the Romans angry. Polybius had that great line, quote, it is when the Romans stand in real danger that they are most to be feared. And the Battle of the Trebia where everyone got to fight, it wasn't just the little cavalry skirmish, the legionaries were there, everything, proved to the Romans that they had something to be afraid of. 
that this was a serious situation, that this 29, 30-year-old Carthaginian general was some sort of genius, that this army that he brought across the Alps was scary, and that they were going to have to treat this as a major problem. Hannibal, by the way, stuck with his typical strategy and let all the Italians that he captured who weren't Roman go. Didn't ransom them, nothing. Send them home, said, tell your uh, people that we're here to free you from the Romans and send help if you can. The Romans he kept in, like, concentration camp type things and hardly gave him enough food and he wasn't treating them too nicely. What's more, um, after the battle, of course, you know, he's free to plunder the land around where he is, get more supplies, anger the Roman citizenry, whatever. The Romans, meanwhile, are busy calling up more armies than they usually do, getting all their farmers out from the fields and drafting them into the legions. They have their normal elections of 217 for their two new consuls, and they elect two new guys, one of whom is this guy named Flaminius. Now, the historians from the era portray this Flaminius character as a hothead, aggressive, concerned about what the folks back home in his political district think. In short, like a typical Roman general. Flaminius is supposed to run up to where Hannibal is. The two of them are supposed to sort of maneuver for a while. Flaminius's subcommanders telling him to be cautious and careful and to hold back, to wait till the rest of the help arrives. And of course, Flaminius is looking at Hannibal, burning the farms around the Roman camp, killing the citizenry. And he says openly, according to the sources, what are the people back in Rome going to think of us if I'm commanding an army here? We're sitting right by this guy who's killing Roman citizens. So despite all the omens we're told, all the signs from the gods that this wouldn't be smart, all the sub-commander's advice, Flaminius goes after Hannibal, and Hannibal leads him right into a trap. One of his best traps, by the way, a battle that the historians call the Battle of Lake Trasimene. And they call it that because there was a giant lake involved. Basically what happens in this battle is Hannibal is able, in an unbelievable move, to essentially conceal his entire army on a forested hillside above a road. Tens of thousands of people hiding in, you know, whatever kind of relative silence that many people can be held to, above this road that this hot-headed General Flaminius goes traipsing down, apparently without much reconnaissance. Hannibal waits until Flaminius's Romans, you know, stretch from one end of the road to the other, probably in a several miles long line. Remember, to the right of the Romans is this hill that Hannibal is hiding on. To the left of them is this giant lake. They're on this little road, and oh yeah, it's first thing in the morning, and there's fog everywhere, and you can hardly see anything. And when the Romans are in the ultimate position, you know, most vulnerable, Hannibal gives the order, and the Carthaginians go charging down the hill. The Romans don't even know what's going on. Both Livy and Polybius write very dramatic accounts of what it was like. Polybius says, That morning a thick mist still hung over the lakeside. Then as soon as the greater part of the Roman army had entered the defile and was already in contact with the Carthaginians, Hannibal gave the signal for battle, passed the word to the troops who were lying in ambush, and fell upon the Romans from all sides at once. This sudden appearance of the enemy took Flaminius completely by surprise. The mist blotted out all visibility, and with the attack being launched from higher ground and from so many points at once, 
The centurions and military tribunes were not only unable to issue any of the necessary orders, but even to grasp what was happening. They found themselves under attack simultaneously from the front, the flanks, and the rear. In consequence, most of the troops were cut down while they were still in marching order, and without the least chance of defending themselves, delivered up to the slaughter, so to speak, by a complete lack of judgment on the part of their commander. In a word, death took them unawares while they were still wondering what to do. Flaminius himself, demoralized and thrown into utter despair by what had happened, was attacked and killed by a band of Celts. Some 15,000 Romans perished in the valley. In this situation, they could do nothing to help themselves, and yet they would not yield to circumstances. They considered it their supreme duty, as all their training had taught them, never to turn tail or to leave their ranks. As for those in the rear, who had been trapped between the hillside and the lake, they suffered an even more humiliating, or rather pitiable, fate. They found themselves herded into the lake, whereupon some lost their heads and tried to swim away in their armor, and were drowned. While the greater number waded out as far as they could, there they stood with only their heads above the water. Then when the cavalry rode in after them, and death stared them in the face, they raised their hands, uttering the most piteous pleas for mercy and begging to be spared. In the end, they were either killed by the horsemen or steeled themselves to self-destruction. That is a horrible situation. A horrible human experience. They didn't even find the consul's body. They looked for it. But it had probably been beheaded and the beautiful armor stripped from the corpse. This would be the first of many times in the Second Punic War where, you know, one of the two Roman consuls, their heads of state, would die at the hands of the Carthaginians. The Roman people, when the news of the disaster was transmitted to them, was one of shock and dismay. Rumors were reaching them, and they were beseeching their leadership for answers. Eventually, as the crowd developed around the government building of Rome, one of the uh, senators and officials simply walked up to the rostrum and said, We've been defeated in a great battle, and then turned around and walked down. And to make matters worse, three days after the news of the disaster of Lake Trasimene reached Rome, they found out that 4,000 cavalry that, been, that had been rushed up there from another legion in order to get there quickly to help had been caught by the Carthaginians and either killed or captured too, three days later. This news shook Rome. The Roman answer was to give one man almost total power. The position was called a dictator, and the Romans decided they needed one. Here's the problem. Normally, it was the consuls who made this decision and appointment. One consul was dead, though, at the Lake Trasimene disaster. The other consul was cut off from Rome by the enemy. So, in a very unusual situation, the Roman people's part of the legislature put a guy in power and gave him supreme military authority, this dictator. The guy's name was Fabius Maximus. Now, Fabius' strategy would be the most unpopular strategy he could have chosen. He basically decides that this Hannibal is someone that you cannot challenge, that you must stay away from him. He's like a giant lion that cannot be beaten, so don't fight him. This did not match the Roman temperament at all. Fabius took his armies and began to simply shadow the Carthaginians, follow Hannibal, cut off stragglers. Hannibal wasn't getting really 
much in the way of reinforcements, certainly not of his best troops, whereas the Romans were getting, getting stronger every day. Fabius uh, would earn a title after his death. He would be known as the Delayer, Fabius the Delayer. And the way that they you know, portrayed him was he was the guy that stopped the bleeding. He stopped the losses to Hannibal. And the way he stopped the losses was by stopping the encounters. Now, Hannibal tried everything in his book to provoke an encounter with Fabius. The attitude now was that Hannibal was going to beat Roman armies if he could fight them. Fabius wasn't going to give him the chance to do any more damage. And Hannibal tried every trick in the book to get him to get pressured to do it. For example, in a great psychological move, Hannibal took his army over to areas where Fabius had land and property and started burning all the surrounding farms and killing all the surrounding citizens, but sparing Fabius's stuff in the midst of all this disaster and then spreading rumors that he had a private deal with the Roman commander that he, you know, we won't go after your stuff. In other words, all of Rome was paying the price for this delaying strategy, except the guy whose strategy it was. Must have been extremely hard for Fabius to hold his men back. And the sources make it seem like they were practically on the verge of mutiny several times against this strategy where Roman citizens were allowed to die because, you know, the Roman troops were not supposed to fight the Carthaginians. The Romans figured, as any good soldiers do, that they could take him. Why was their commander such a wimp? What many of the Romans of that era didn't realize was the genius behind the strategy of Fabius Maximus. As a matter of fact, in today's military colleges, you'll learn about something called the Fabian strategy. The Fabian strategy is exactly what Fabius was doing, and that's why it's named after him. At the time to the Romans, it looked like he was allowing the enemy to do whatever he wanted to. And several times during Fabius's dictatorship, Hannibal would slap around some sub-commander who had violated the principles or gone against Fabius's idea thereby validating it again for an angry people looking for confrontation with the enemy in their homeland. Fabius also realized the greater aspect of what was going on in the war with Hannibal, and that's that the war wasn't just with Hannibal. The Romans were on the move in Spain and in some of these islands, and they were attacking the Carthaginians basically, for the most part, successfully in some of their other areas. Their strategy had become beat the Carthaginians Everywhere they are commanded by someone not named Hannibal. As a matter of fact, our old friend Scipio and his brother were in Spain at that very moment making progress in the Carthaginian, you know, main base in Europe. Fabius back in Italy realized that the war elsewhere would decide the entire conflict if they could just avoid having Hannibal defeat them in Italy. Something that was tough to see from the ground at the time. Now, maybe the greatest thing from a human being standpoint that Fabius ever did happened when he gave his power back to the state. When we think of a dictator in modern times, we think of an absolute ruler who would never give up power willingly. But part of the compliment that it was in ancient Rome to have this bestowed upon you was the understanding that you were trustworthy enough to avoid the temptation of absolute power and you'd give the power back. So the real prestige that your family gained from this whole being a dictator thing was enhanced when you gave that power back to the state, which Fabius did as soon as it was possible for Rome to elect two new consuls, which in 216 they did. One was named Paulus, the other was named Varro. And 
Hannibal had to be the number one thing on the political agenda of Rome before that election. You have to imagine that the main campaign promise, if you want, Rome was a republic, so it didn't quite work out that way. But you have to know that the number one thing to solve, problem-wise, has to be this Carthaginian general, 31 or 32 years old by now, rampaging around your country, oh, going on year three. Rome decided through all sorts of rationalizations that they just hadn't really prepared to fight him correctly. They never really trained their troops correctly. They didn't raise a large enough army. All these human rationalizations for it was time to get serious, beat Hannibal and get done with this. As opposed to this idea that we just keep Hannibal at arm's length and win the war everywhere else. The Romans put about 90,000 guys in the field near Hannibal. And Hannibal was waiting for this battle. He was hoping. All he wanted was the Romans to fight. He was waiting for all these Roman cities to come over to him and all these Italian people to come over to him so his strategy would work. Hadn't really happened yet. He knew if he could just really lay waste to Rome, just beat them good, that some of these major cities would finally come over to him and his strategy long-term would start to work. So he was itching for a battle, and finally he had Romans itching to have one too. These two armies got close to each other. Rome was informed that, hey, a battle is shaping up. We're told that the mood in Rome was near frantic about this. They knew that this decisive encounter was about to take place. The year before the Lake Trasimene disaster happened. The year before that, the Trebia happened. I mean, the people in Rome were going to all the temples. They were looking for signs. Rumors were rampant. Prayers were being made. Everybody was on edge. What would it mean, they were thinking to themselves, if we were to lose this? At the site where the battle is going to take place, near a town called Cani, one of the Roman consuls, remember, when both of the Roman consuls are at the same battle spot, they command on alternate days. And once again, you have these two political generals fighting with each other. In this case, it's this Paulus guy against this Varro guy. And the Paulus guy is saying, I don't like this terrain here. I don't want to fight here. There's not enough places to contain Hannibal's cavalry. This is a bad idea. I'm against it. The other commander, Varro's going, you're out of your mind. We've got him here. We've got tons more men. You're a coward. You know, let's go get him. And Varro's troops are screaming and yelling that they're being denied a chance to confront the enemy. And why would you let them, you know, damage more Roman homes and farms and people, etc., etc. Had this big argument going on once again. On Paulus' day to command, Hannibal actually brings his army out and offers battle. And Paulus looks around and decides the signs aren't good. He's not going to risk it under these conditions. He wants to pull back to a different location or something where the conditions can be different. So he doesn't fight that day. Once again, Varro and his men and all these people almost mutiny, saying what a coward he is and how that makes them look and it's bad for morale and all that stuff. So the next day, it's Varro's turn to command. He takes the army out. Not just that, he starts lining them up extra deep. It's a constrained sort of a battle area. The Romans have like 90,000 guys. And so Varro has them stacked behind each other. We're told that he takes the standard Roman battle formation and simply deepens it. So instead of the normal Roman way of fighting, you just have a giant battering ram of heavy infantry ready to push through this smaller Carthaginian army that they outnumbered two to one. And you get the feeling Hamilcar must have been proud as he looked down from beyond the grave because two of his lion's brood sons were here at this crucial battle 
commanding troops in important positions. And the third, Hasdrubal, was in Spain commanding the Carthaginian European base. And it's a strange thought. But here is Rome facing this crisis situation in a position they would not be in if Hamilcar never had children. The Romans were now bringing out a monumentally sized army, almost certainly the largest army that that period in history had ever seen on one side. You'd think Hannibal would be scared. Instead, he was probably thinking, finally, I get my chance to carry out what my dad wanted, which is to shatter the Romans. They brought up enough people for me to really do them some damage. Remember, Hannibal's strategy wasn't working. Cities were not coming over to him. The Italian allies had not been shaken by his victory so far. Now he was looking at 90,000 Romans approaching and thinking to himself, almost certainly, here's my chance. This is the battle that made Hannibal. Had this battle not happened, he would have been thought a good commander. This is the battle that has fascinated military theorists ever since. As a matter of fact, obsessed might be a better word. And the reason it obsesses generals all throughout history. I mean, the whole strategy of the First World War, the German Schlieffen plan is thought to have been based on this. And I mean, the number of battles that can be called, I mean, from Frederick the Great to Napoleon, I mean, general after general, Caesar, Canet is the masterstroke. It's a battle that, by the way, if you believe guys like Clausewitz, is impossible. He said that concentric activity is not appropriate for the weaker side, meaning weaker armies do not surround larger armies. It's impossible. This is exactly what Hannibal's plan envisioned. Surrounding and destroying an army that was twice his size. The way he did it was a tactical form of judo, using the enemy's strength and turning it against him. The way he did it was novel. He put his weakest, most unreliable troops in the middle of the battle line, the Carthaginian battle line. What's more, he pushed them out ahead of the battle line, made it sort of look like a crescent moon facing outwards. So you had a straight battle line, and then all of a sudden when you get to the middle, you have this crescent facing ahead, and then you get back to a standard battle line. In that crescent, he put his Spanish troops, intermixed with his Gallic Celtic troops. Alongside them on the flanks, he put his good African infantry, his best heavy standard troops, who had been rearmed, by the way, with the shields and the armor of all the dead Romans that Hannibal had been wiping out left and right. There was another weird trick that played games with the minds of the Romans once this battle broke out, and that is seeing a lot of Romans on the other side, well, at least visually. Now, on the flanks of these Africans was the superior Carthaginian cavalry the Numidians on one side, the heavy Spanish and Celtic cavalry on the other, they had a crucial part to play in this battle. Now, Hannibal and his brother Mago stationed themselves in the middle, the weakest part, the part composed of Celtic allies and Spanish troops. This was very important because there was no way these troops in the middle were supposed to be able to stand up to the Roman pounding. They couldn't. It wasn't their normal nature to face what they were about to face. Hannibal and Mago being right there in the thick of it was a way of telling these troops that their job was not to die. You aren't cannon fodder. The fact that I'm standing here with you proves it. I guarantee we will be saved. Don't run away. 
If you die, I die, after all. Now, what happened when the battle broke out was that this giant battering ram of compressed Roman infantry advanced, made contact with this center where these Celts and Spanish were, and began to push it backwards, turn that crescent inside out. But that turned the crescent into a bag. Hannibal and Mago and the Spanish and the Gauls gave ground only grudgingly, slowly backing up, and the Romans began to push themselves into a place where the African infantry that were on either side at the beginning of the battle were on the edges now of the Roman formation, and every little time that they gain a victory and push the Celts and the Spanish back more, they would be advancing deeper into Hannibal's bag. Now, this happened after the cavalry battles on the wings. What was going on on the wings was pretty predictable. The same pattern that had taken place in most of Hannibal's battles took place again. The superior Carthaginian cavalry drove the Romans from the field on one side, or Hasdrubal was. Not Hannibal's brother, by the way. This is another Hasdrubal, just another one of those confusing Carthaginian name things. And then he took his cavalry all the way around to the other flank and helped the Numidians out and destroyed the Roman allied cavalry, or more Roman cavalry. And then both that cavalry turned around and attacked the flanks and rear of the Roman infantry. What's more, at the crucial time, the African infantry on the two wings of this bag that the Roman advance into the reversed crescent had made turned around and attacked the Romans from the flanks. All of a sudden, 85, 90,000 guys are completely encircled. I've sometimes tried to imagine where the worst place to be in the world at any given time was. This is a weird game to play, I know, but if you think about it, you know, with the way my twisted Martian brain does, and sort of do a top 10 list of places you would not want to be in history on a single given day, on your top 10 list is going to be somewhere in the Roman lines in August 216, after the encirclement is complete at Kenny. First of all, what's happening? I mean, Victor Davis Hanson wrote a wonderful piece once where he talked about what it must have been like to be one of those Roman troops. And the experience is something like this. Remember, this is an experience you yourself could easily be involved in. You could just be the son of a farmer and you're called up into the Roman legions and find yourself completely surrounded all of a sudden on one bad day in a hot, windy place with the dust blowing in your face. One historian saying you probably couldn't even see anything on the Roman side the day of that battle with the dust all blowing in their face. It's hot. It's claustrophobic. You can't see anything if you're in, you know, behind the first couple of ranks in this formation. The men in front of you are going to have tall, crested helms. They're going to be using their shields to ward off missiles. All you can probably see is the ground around you. Hansen says your first sign of problems is going to be when the forward momentum stops, which would happen once the cavalry attacked the Roman rear. When you attack the rear of a formation like this, the rear troops turn around to defend themselves, and all of a sudden the formation just stops. You know, the pressure and the relentless momentum of the forward move stops. Then Hansen points out that this is when the fright starts. Phobos ruling the battlefield. That's when the people individually start to remember, my goodness, remember what happened at Lake Trasimene? Remember what happened at the Trebia? Remember that this guy is a exceedingly gifted general? Why aren't we moving forward? Now, for visualization purposes, you have to imagine you have this circle of people, the Roman infantry, 
completely surrounded by a smaller force. The number of Romans is equivalent to a large modern stadium full of people. It's larger than almost any of the cities in Italy at the time. There were a few larger than this, but you figure 80,000 or so people in this ring of you know, soon-to-be death is an astonishingly large number of folks to be surrounded. And the people in the middle can hardly lift their arms. They've got missiles now coming in from all sides. The ancient writers say they could hardly miss. You have this giant mass of people. The wind supposedly still blowing dust in their faces. They can hardly see, if you're trying to imagine what it's like in the ranks, just imagine being able to see a foot or two in front of you, all sorts of chaos around you, rumors in your head of what's about to happen or what is happening, unbelievable noise, and panic. Remember, that's the main thing in an ancient battle, panic. You're trying to get the other side to run away. Here's the thing, though. What do you do if you're surrounded and can't run away? Well, at some point in the battle, the Romans realized that they weren't getting out. And all sorts of heroic things are supposed to have taken place as part of this. I mean, one thing is, uh, the chroniclers say, that the Roman cavalry, which actually stood a chance of breaking out and getting away, they were the only ones who could, you know, being riders and all, that they dismounted. And supposedly when Hannibal saw this, he knew he had the battle won. The reason the cavalry dismounted was they had decided to sell their lives dearly and they were going to die where they stood next to all the other people who were trapped. It's almost like one of those moments where the Titanic is sinking and everyone who's left on board knows that they're going down. Well, that's what it was like in the Roman situation. The Romans knew that this was probably the end and all sorts of things took place that make you wonder what it was like, you know, dealing with their situation. Because remember, just because they knew they probably weren't getting home alive didn't mean that this was coming, you know, right now. This killing was going to have to be done by hand. Hannibal's army could not bomb this mass of men into extinction or shoot bullets at them from a distance. The actual taking advantage of the surrounding of the Roman army had to be done by hand. And it was brutal business, and it was dangerous business. A lot of Carthaginians were going to lose their lives winning this battle that most of us today, you know, reading about it, assume was already won. Once the Romans are surrounded, we pretty much in our heads figure, okay, well, you know, deal done. And we forget that there's a ton of actual killing involved before this, you know, victory is Hannibal's. Victor Davis Hansen tries to find an analogy to give people a modern idea of how many people were being killed around this ring of death. He says it's 100 deaths a minute. Just imagine, if you will, about 20 modern jumbo jet aircraft crashing every hour. All day long. Estimates of how much blood was on the field of battle at the end of the day are, well, appalling. Once you get above a certain number, it's hard to envision. Try about 30,000 gallons as a low number. 30,000 gallons of human blood in a small confined area. Now, there's two things going on as far as the Roman ring of death, as I call it. You've got the people in the middle who are going literally crazy because of what this is. I mean, if you're claustrophobic, imagine being in the middle of all these people with stuff coming at you from all sides, with people screaming from wounds that they've... Inv I mean, the, it must have been an absolutely maddening sort of environment. As a matter of fact, after the battle, 
the Carthaginians walk the battlefield and find Romans who were in the middle of this mass of men for hours waiting to die, had dug holes at their feet, put their head in the holes, and covered them up with dirt and suffocated themselves this way. At first you think, wow, the conditions just drove those people mad. On the other hand, sometimes I think if I was in that condition and you knew death was coming anyway, and you thought, why am I going to wait five more hours in this terrifying environment for what's coming anyway? Who knows, maybe that was the intelligent solution when you get right down to it. In any case, it gives you an idea of how maddening the environment was as these people crowded together, waiting for death. And the people on the edges of the circle were the ones actually fighting, were fighting for their lives individually against the Carthaginians all around them. Hansen says that it was likely that the pressure from inside this ring of people actually pushed them outward and spitted them on the um, waiting weapons of their enemies. In any case, the Romans knew that they were all that was between Hannibal and Rome and Hannibal and their various Italian cities that these legionaries came from, so they were going to sell their lives dearly. And six to 8,000 Carthaginians would die, you know, getting this overwhelming victory for Hannibal. Uh, the estimates of the dead, Livy gives 50,000 dead and says that 20,000 were captured. Polybius says 70,000 Romans died and 10,000 were captured. Among the people who died, well, there was one current consul who died. Paulus, of course, the guy who said, don't fight, but I'll come with you anyway because, you know, I wouldn't let you down. He's hit with a sling stone, we're told, early in the battle and is bleeding from early on. As the last rout is happening and some of the Romans are running, a military tribune, you know, Livy has a story of a military tribune finding Paulus sitting on a rock and stops from fleeing away from the Carthaginian pursuit to talk to him and gives an account. Livy writes, The whole force of Romans was now broken and dispersed. Those who could recovered their horses, hoping to escape. Lentulus, the military tribune, as he rode by, saw the consul Paulus sitting on a stone and bleeding profusely. He said, You only in the sight of heaven are guiltless of this day's disaster. Take my horse, while you still have some strength left, and I am able to lift you up and protect you. Do not add to the darkness of our calamity by a consul's death. Without that, we have cause enough for tears. God bless your courage, Paulus answered. But you have little time to escape. Do not waste it in useless pity. Get you gone and tell the Senate to look to Rome and fortify it with strong defenses before the victorious enemy can come. And take a personal message, too. Tell Fabius that while I lived, I did not forget his counsel and that I remember it still in the hour of death. As for me, let me die here amongst my dead soldiers. I would not a second time stand trial after my consulship, nor would I accuse my colleague to protect myself by incriminating another. Livy writes, the two men were still speaking when a crowd of fugitives swept by. The Numidians were close on their heels. Paulus fell under a shower of spears, his killers not even knowing whom they killed. In the confusion, Lentulus's horse bolted and carried him off. So I guess that's how we supposedly get that story handed down to us. Lentulus escapes back to Rome and talks about encountering the doomed consul while getting away. So Rome loses a current consul, lose both consuls from the year before at the Battle of Kenny. 29 military tribunes, high-ranking officials die. 80 senators who volunteered to fight died. 
300 Roman elites or people that historians often refer to as knights died. In other words, a large part of the Roman ruling class felt, you know, either through their own deaths or through the deaths of their close loved ones, the damage at Cannae. It was a stupendous victory. At the end of the day, the vast majority of those 70,000 people that Polybius says died were dead. What's more, the rest would be killed the next day. The battlefield is supposed to have been one of the most amazing, horrific sights anyone had ever seen. And that's by their standards, ancient people who were used to seeing the results of ancient battle. It's unimaginable for people like us, who've never seen anything like it. Where's my Pulitzer Prize-winning photo of the battlefield the day after Kenny? It's not a mental picture that any of us can envision. And there are often people who will try to tell you what battle in that period was like, or what something like the battlefield of Kenny must have looked like the day afterwards. Don't believe a word of it. We don't know what it was like, and anyone who tries to tell you differently, no matter what their credentials, is lying. The experts disagree. No one's seen anything like this for 500 years. What did organized, mass, civilized killing look like before there was gunpowder? Just think about the images that remained in the heads of all the people who lived on after seeing what that looked like and the nightmares they must have had the rest of their lives. You talk about post-traumatic stress disorder. In a modern sense, think about what the survivors on both sides must have seen in their nightmares at night for the rest of their lives. Images that the human mind cannot imagine. And it's the same thing with ancient combat. This is something that we can't imagine. Could you have done this up close and personal combat? As Hannibal and his generals walk the battlefield the day after, as Romans who were only wounded, a lot of them had their hamstrings cut as they tried to get away from behind, had to be finished off the next day. Livy says that they were bearing their throats to the Carthaginians, asking to be finished off, basically. They didn't speak the same language, but they figured it was sort of an international sign language finish me off and they did matter of fact in the hot August sun it would have been a problem if they didn't but you can only imagine trying to deal with you know that many people dead in such a small area and yet of course as shocked as he's said to have been Hannibal at this sight his sub-generals must have been in a wonderful mood one of them says it's time to move on Rome and back in Rome, that's exactly how they were feeling, too. Panic does not do justice to the Roman reaction to the loss at Kenny. It looked like they were doomed. It reminds you of Polybius's line once again. It is when the Romans stand in real danger that they are most to be feared. And after the Battle of Kenny in 216, the Romans stood in real danger. Oh.
Welcome to the Alpha Male Buddhist from Brooklyn podcast. I'm your host, Miguel. I like to cover topics from ancient history, great leaders and generals from the past, and I also like to talk about self-realization, truth, critical thinking, and strategic spirituality. Outside the box, nonconformist. I'm here to shatter the myths of the mainstream media and the beta sheeple narrative. My email address is alphamalebuddhist at gmail.com. My website is alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com. My Instagram is alphamalebuddhist. And check out my YouTube channel, Knowledge Hobo. That's on YouTube. It is the podcast accompanied with video clips that integrate exactly with the podcast so it's motivational and inspirational. I also have promotional t-shirts. If you go to my website, alphamalebuddhist.podbean.com, you can see the promotional t-shirts there. Reach out to me. Also, if you have any show notes or any suggestions that you would like to hear on the podcast, just reach out and see if I can get that done. I've been getting some really Great emails and feedback from my listeners, which is great. So I want to thank you for listening and namaste.